Good to see you. Thanks for coming out. We're going to have some fun discussing, dissecting, unpacking what has become for me recently. I don't know if I could say favorite book, but it's bumping up the list on a book that has a lot to speak to our cultural moment. Now, as I thought this through, I thought I could teach for five nights and give lectures and you could just kind of sit there and take notes, or we could do this a little bit more since it's a smaller group, discussion, interactive. So I'm going to ask a lot of questions. We're going to kind of dialogue through this. So my hope is, and my challenge if you're there this morning, is that if you can only come one night, great. Any night you can come or not come is awesome. But the book of 1 Peter, you can read all of it in about 15 minutes. So I want to challenge each of you to find 15 minutes, read the book straight all the way through, and think kind of 30,000 foot view level of this book. You read it each day for five days, and as we discuss it, in five days you're going to have a handle on this book in a way based on the response of who the audience the book is written to, maybe we don't have yet, which is good. I was actually glad. I'm like, gosh, more of them know where Biola is than 1 Peter is written to. I'll take it because this week we're talking about 1 Peter. So I challenge you each day to read the book, find 15 minutes, think through questions that you have, maybe write it down, come, and we're going to dialogue and we're discuss it together. So that's our goal. Think kind of 30,000 foot view level of this book, big picture. Now, in a sense, why 1 Peter? Well, 1 Peter is written, as we're going to get to, to an audience in northern, kind of actually north of Israel in modern-day Turkey. And you might say the temperature is being turned up where they're facing some hostility for their faith. So I started to think this, I thought we live in a cultural moment where there's a lot of parallels with probably Peter writing this in the 60s and our culture right now in America. And it's really a book about how do you suffer well? How do we love our neighbors, respect authority, in a culture that seems to be at odds with the larger Christian worldview? That sounds pretty timely today, doesn't it? So we're going to have fun diving in to this book. So let's start and obviously, we're at First Peter. That sounds like the most obvious Bible reference I've ever made in my life. We're in First Peter. Let's look at verse 1. So the goal is each night to work our way through a chapter if, if we can. Starts off, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here's a question. You tell me quickly. What do we know about Peter? What do we know about him? He has a big mouth, okay? I would say Peter's the kind of person... You can't ever say there's only two kind of people in the world, but there's people who think and then speak, and there's people who think while they're speaking, right? And that's not better or worse. There's people who process out loud and people who process internally. I get the impression that Peter processes out loud and then thinks about it, right? That's Peter. He's bold. He says stuff. He's a leader. He's outgoing. That's true about Peter. It's a good observation. What else do we know about Peter? He's a disciple. Now, when you say Peter's a disciple, we actually have to define that. Because a disciple means a follower, doesn't it? Now, in Peter's introduction, it says Peter, an apostle. Sometimes when we think apostle, we think it means the 12. Sometimes when we hear disciple, we think it means the 12. But neither actually just captures the 12. So Paul tends to use the apostle as a follower of Jesus who has seen the risen Lord and is sent out to go minister. So Paul's not one of the 12, but we obviously call him the Apostle Paul. Now, Peter, what's unique is he's a disciple in the sense of a follower of Jesus. He's an apostle in the sense that he saw the risen Jesus and is commissioned to go out, and he's one of the 12. So, that's what we mean we've got to think through about the role of Peter. He's one of the 12. And in fact, what role did he play amongst the 12? He's in the inner circle three, which was who? Peter, James, and John. So Jesus has 12, but then he has three within the 12. 
Do you know Peter's referenced at least 75 times if you add up the, the New Testament? He's referenced more than any of the other apostles. He's always mentioned first. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they list the apostles, Peter's always mentioned first. He's clearly the leader of the apostles. That's who Peter is. Now, his name, Peter, means what? It means rock. He, this commentary I was reading said he might have been the first pe- person named Peter. I can't prove that. I don't know if this commentary got it right or not, but he certainly popularized the name Peter. Petros or Cephas was his Aramaic name, which means rock, and he becomes a rock of the faith, although he probably wasn't a rock at the moment Jesus called him that, interestingly enough. Anything else we know about Peter? He was a fisherman. Good. Now, some people will question whether or not Peter could have written this book because it has very good Greek, and people say, well, fishermen couldn't do this. Well, one, they don't understand Many times, the kind of education you would need to be a fisherman. That's an interesting angle. But it seems that Peter also maybe had an amanuensis who helped him write it that he dictated to. That's a possibility. But this is also decades later from when Peter came to faith. He had a lot of time to grow and develop. But yes, he was a fisherman by trade. Good. Anything else about Peter that jumps out to you? He did deny Jesus. How many times? Three times. After saying what? I will never deny you. And what did Jesus do? He restores him by the shore. So there's a powerful case of Peter. Now, I always found it interesting to compare Peter and Judas. Because Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. Yet he forgave and restored Peter. I think he actually would have forgiven Judas, but of course he went a very different direction. So that was a defining moment for Peter. And then when Jesus restores him, what does he say? And this is at the end of John. What does he say? He says, feed my sheep. Good. And then what else does he say? Tend my sheep. Good. What else? He tells him at the end of John, because remember, he denied him three times after saying he never would. He tells them, you will be taken where you do not want to go. You will be clothed by another. And the author of John says that's because he was telling Peter how Peter was going to die. So I actually did my doctoral research and have written a 300-page academic book on the deaths of the apostles. And we have about as strong of a confirmation in the first and second century. We have a total of 10 sources that affirmed that Peter died, some at the end of the first century, into the second century, that Peter died as a martyr in Rome. So shortly after he writes this book, Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled, that he denied him three times, but then Peter did lay down his life. When we get to Q&A, you can ask me if I think he was crucified upside down and all that kind of stuff. We'll have plenty of Q&A, but regardless of how he died, we know that Peter did die as a martyr and laid down his life. Good. Anything else about Peter? Jump out. Okay, good. That's right. So Paul seems to be commissioned to the Gentiles, but as we saw this morning in Acts 17, he starts off by going to the Jews. Peter was commissioned to the Jews, but also at times went to the Gentiles. Good, excellent. Yeah, one more thing, go. Yeah, you see this in in Galatians, right? Although we only have one side of that conversation, interestingly enough, that tells us almost more about Paul than it maybe does about Peter that he would critique an apostle publicly and basically say, wait a minute, you have a double standard. What this yoke you're putting on the Gentiles as you interact with the Jews, he called out what he thought was hypocrisy by Peter. So good observation. Now, this book, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What kind of book is 1 Peter, by the way? It's an epistle, which is what? Which is a letter. One of the biggest mistakes we make in interpreting the Bible 
is we don't take into consideration the genre of the book. So how you read Revelation should be very different than Proverbs, should be very different than the Gospels or Leviticus or Psalms or a letter. So I went through First Peter with a group of high school students, and uh, what I did is in the middle, I stopped in my class. I said, hang on, I'm getting a call. And I took up my phone, and I just pretended to have a call with, with my wife, and I put it down. I said, hey, what happened in this conversation? What'd you learn? Why were you limited? And they kind of figured out, they're like, well, we only heard half of this conversation. They're like, we had to kind of fill in the blank and guess other things because they only heard half. Now, how does that apply to a letter? What do you have in a letter? It, you have half of the conversation. You don't know the context. You don't know if there was a response. It's half of the conversation. So there's a couple times in Peter that we'll get to where you kind of stop and go, wait a minute, what is going on here? And because it's a letter, the intended audience presumably would have known. And we have to kind of guess and piece it together because we don't know for sure. That's the nature of interpreting a letter. Anything else we should keep in mind as we read a letter? The audience, okay, good. And we're going to get to that in a second. The question is, who is Peter writing to? Is he writing to Jews? Is he writing to Gentiles? Is he writing to both? Why did he write the letter? What's his goal in writing the letter? All of these questions inform how we interpret the book. Excellent. What else in a letter? And by the way, those of you who are like 30 and under, a letter is like a handwritten... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I, I kid you not, a friend of mine, this was two years ago, has a gap year, and he was having students write a letter to themselves. And then like six months after they got back, he'd mail it to them. And all of a sudden, these hands go up. They're like, how do you fill out the front of a letter? They didn't know. Like, where do you put the address? Where does the stamp go? And, I, and at first, I thought it was crazy. I'm like, well, I guess it makes sense. Who writes handwritten letters anymore, right? But in this case, this is a letter that was the technology of the day. He would write it, presumably with some help. They would copy it multiple times, and then they would send it to the different locations. Anything else about interpreting a letter that jumps out to you? So should we expect a lot of metaphorical language or apocalyptic language like in the book of Daniel? Probably not. In some ways, if you got a handwritten letter in the mail, very similar to how we interpret this letter. Now, it's also formal because in that day, they had a certain way of writing letters. And if you read the epistle of Peter, there's some similarities to how Paul wrote a letter as well. But keep in mind, as we analyze and break into this book, it's a letter from Paul. All right, so let's move all that on verse, we're not even done with verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So from Peter to those who are elect. Now, when you read elect... You might be tempted to think, oh, P Peter is starting this letter talking about predestination and election and Calvinism. I don't think that's what Peter's doing here. By elect, any guess is what he's referring to in the Old Testament. What's he referring to about Israel? I heard someone say it, that they're what? That they're the chosen people. So elect is just another term, as in the Old Testament, this was God's chosen people, who he elected for a certain season to accomplish a certain task. Peter is saying, you are now God's chosen people. You are the elect. So in some ways, whether or not there's a future role for Israel, he's saying the church is now the primary vehicle that God is working through in a way he did in the past with Israel. So I think that's what he means by elect. You possibly could just say to those who are chosen exiles of the dispersion. Now, what's the dispersion? You nailed it. The dispersion was in Israel, many of the Jews had left Israel into other neighboring nations throughout the Roman Empire. This is called the dispersion. 
So he's writing to Christians, and by this stage, we're within a few decades after the death of Jesus and the start of the church. So this is really the beginning of the church in these different areas. So these are people in exile. They're not in the promised land, so to speak. And Peter's writing, I mean, he lists a few areas. He says Pontus, Galatia, which is interesting because it's the same people that he writes a whole book to named you guys are sharp. I don't care what Art says. This is a good group. Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Essentially, this is modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. So I don't have a map I'm throwing, but if this is Israel, the Mediterranean Sea, you're going up north right here into the area above Lebanon, above Syria, into modern-day Turkey he's riding to. And these are probably small churches. They're meeting in homes. These are not mega churches. The movement is just beginning in this area. Now, what's interesting is that Peter never mentions Paul because we don't have any evidence that Peter visited these places. But on Paul's missionary journey, he had. I don't know why. I mean, we could only guess. But he's writing a letter, probably has not been there. And it says... uh, So let's jump to verse 2. So that's who he's writing to. Okay, so a lot of Paul's letters are written to individual churches, Christians in Rome, Christians in Ephesus. He's writing to all these areas in modern-day Turkey. And this is a long sentence, but track, there's a lot here. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, how many persons of the Trinity does Peter mention here? You'd have to do some math. I know it's tough. Throw it up there. All three. I have a friend who was in a debate not long ago with an atheist who's a former Christian. And he goes, give me one first that proves the Trinity. And I thought that very standard is mistaken. We don't believe God is triune because there's one verse that says God is triune. That means the Father, Son. Like that's a very Greek way of thinking, not a Hebrew way of writing. We've got us triune because the scripture teaches that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are each divine and yet they're distinct persons. So this doesn't prove the Trinity, but right at the beginning, Notice how Peter places the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as distinct persons with distinct roles kind of on the same level. So other passages that would be like baptism in like Matthew 4, where Jesus baptized in the name of the what? Father, the Son, and Moses, right? Oh, wait. You laugh because that would be what? That would be heresy. Good answer. Because you wouldn't put Moses on the level as the father and the son. Now, that doesn't prove the Trinity. But you see the biblical writers putting them on the same level. They're distinct, and yet they also belong on the same level. So one interesting thing while you read 1 Peter is to pay attention to the role of the father and the son and the spirit. It's a very Trinitarian book. So if you read Galatians, for example, Paul starts off by talking about the Father and the Son, doesn't get to the Spirit until later. And of course, you have the fruits of the Spirit. Peter, right out of the gate, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as you're reading through it this week and we're discussing it, it's interesting who he mentions the Father and the Spirit and the Son and the different roles that they have, and how they work together. It's a fascinating observation within this book. So he says, and by the way, when it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, all Peter is saying is he's not saying God knew what was going to happen ahead of time. He's saying within the plan of God the Father from the beginning, right? Jesus was the lamb crucified before the foundation of the world. This didn't catch God by surprise when Adam and Eve sinned. So when he says the foreknowledge of God the Father, he's saying this is the plan of the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Now what does that mean, sprinkling with his blood? 
And we understand why he throws that in there. Like modern day, if you don't understand the Old Testament and you read this, that would probably be kind of jarring, wouldn't it? It'd be awkward to just read sprinkling with blood. Does anybody know what that's a reference to? Oh, sacrifices where? In the Old Testament. So in Exodus 24, when they actually seal the covenant, they would throw out some of the blood in certain circumstances on the people, which today, like with health, with COVID and all this stuff, people are like cringing, right? But that was one symbolic way with the original covenant, the sprinkling of blood. And of course, they do this over the Ark of the Covenant as well. So notice what Peter has already done in the first two verses. How many times has he pretty strongly referenced the Old Testament? I'm giving you a big hint. At least twice. How so? He says the elect, the chosen people, and then sprinkling with his blood. This book is filled with references and understandings to the Old Testament. If you're paying attention to it, they'll pop up all the time. If you're not paying attention, read through in kind of a cursory manner, you might miss it. But even in his intro, Peter frames this. So that tells us who he's writing to. Probably writing to Jews and Gentiles, but this is unmistakably a Jewish faith. Jesus is for everybody, but this faith is only understood in light of the Old Testament. Okay, before we keep going, any quick questions just about the audience before we kind of jump in? Are you asking if I agree or disagree with that? No, I... Oh, okay. So, so the primary, so he, so when he calls them the elect and he gives their roles in salvation, this is a book about a salvation that has an inheritance for them that's been secured. So I agree with that. Now, I don't, I think there's obviously more roles that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit play than is listed here. I think all I'm saying is, how this is accomplished is where Calvinists and Arminius and others will disagree the medium by this. His larger point is that they are the chosen ones from God and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I agree with what you said, play distinct roles within that salvific process. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. So fair, fair enough. Uh, and then he says, quickly, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's jump into verse 3 and keep going. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how many did he mention, by the way? Right there, of the Trinity. The Father, blessed be the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. How is he referring to Jesus? Our Lord. I think this is a divine way he's referring to Jesus. Peter has what you would call a high Christology of the identity of Jesus, very clearly. This is according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice how long the sentence is, by the way. Uh, from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That one sentence is what? Three verses? I would fail him in English. No, that's not true. 
You can't fail the apostle Peter. Now, a few, a few things to keep in mind. Notice he says he's caused us to be born again. You will see this a few times in the book of Peter. This is one of the few times in the New Testament outside of the gospel of John where Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus that he talks about being born again. So Peter's going to reference this a few times, which is the idea that we have to be the story of Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says you've been born naturally, you must be born spiritually. Peter uses this reference and tells me he's likely familiar with that story tied to Nicodemus. So he uses this born again terminology. Cause to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what's the basis by which we can be born again? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. His death paid the debt that we owe to God. Because of what Jesus did, we then can be born again. So the root of it is the resurrection of Jesus. Then he says, from the dead, to an inheritance. Now, by the way, when we think of an inheritance, what do we think of? We, We think of death, right? When somebody dies, they inherit something. I think that's a piece of it. You see that with a prodigal son. He had an inheritance and he demanded it early, was basically saying to his father, you are dead to me. So inheritance was something you would receive when you were dead. But also, remember, what did he just call Israel? I'm sorry, what did he call the church? He called them the chosen one. If you go back to the Old Testament, they are told that they have an inheritance awaiting them in the promised land. So there's a sense where he's saying there's inheritance that comes when you die, but this inheritance is secured and we can begin to benefit from it right now. There's kind of a future and a present sense of inheritance. So he's using this word intentionally. Okay, and we'll come back to why that's important. It says, through salvation, uh, verse, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, why would Peter use so many words for this inheritance? Notice the words that he used. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. Why would Peter go out of his way to say, you've got this inheritance, it's guaranteed for you, we don't have it yet, but it's in the future. Why would he use such strong words like unfading and undefiled and guaranteed in heaven? Anybody know? Give it a shot, go. Well said. You are two for two. You've been reading this book before you came up here this week. So remember, he's writing to these Christians in these churches in Turkey who are undergoing some hostility for their faith. And what's he saying? He's trying to encourage them to suffer well, and he's encouraging them to be holy amidst this. So how does he encourage them? He says, because Jesus has risen from the dead, And by the way, Peter, who's writing this, saw Jesus risen from the dead. That guarantees that your inheritance is secure. So the reason he's giving so many adjectives here, undefiled, unfading in heaven, is he doesn't want them to miss that because Jesus has risen from the grave, they now have the strength and the basis of their hope amidst their suffering. That's why Peter says this so early, is he wants to establish for them that we have reason to suffer well. Our faith is well-rooted. Our hope is well-placed because we have an inheritance in heaven. Wouldn't it be amazing to just talk to Peter at that stage and be like, what was it like to see Jesus? What was it like in the room when he showed up and Thomas wanted to see his sides? Peter had that experience. And that's why he writes with such confidence. Well said, great answer. That's why he's talking about this kept in heaven for you. Verse five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, In verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. A lot of this book is, how do we suffer well? That's the theme of the book of 1 Peter. What's the first thing Peter says about suffering? He says, you have this imperishable, unfading, undefiled guarantee of heaven. How should we respond to that? What's the first thing Peter says? Rejoice. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm suffering, I don't always want somebody to say, hey, you should rejoice. Right? But what is Peter doing? He's trying to shift their thinking from their present suffering to have an eternal perspective. That's what this book is about. If we're focused on our present and our heads are down, we're going to view very differently and not be able to rejoice. But if we understand who God is, that he's risen from the dead, and this is promised to us, that transforms how we experience the present. So the first thing Peter says about suffering is to rejoice. But then he gives the second one very quickly. It says, so the tested genuineness of your faith. So what's the second purpose? Not that God causes, but God allows suffering. What's the second one? To test the genuineness of our faith. So one response we should have is we rejoice. But second, Peter says, a part of this is a test. It's not like God is setting them up for failure. But what Peter talks about is when we're tested, kind of like in Job, we separate the real from the false, so to speak. And he's saying God is purifying us and he's testing us to build a genuine faith. That's what Peter's writing. Okay, and we'll come back to that. Though it was tested, uh, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, So why is faith more precious than gold? Why? Because because gold what? It perishes. Heaven and our security is what? It's imperishable. Gold what? Perishes. See the contrast that Peter is making? We tend to value what? Well, gold, because we think it has so much value. See what Peter's doing? He's shifting from a temporal, worldly focus to an eternal, godly focus. So he uses gold because everybody tends to value gold. He's like, no, your faith, your guarantee in heaven is actually more valuable than gold. That's what Peter's trying to get him to think. Uh, Though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Praise and glory and honor for who? For Jesus, exactly. This is a very theocentric book. Ultimately, their suffering is about what? It's not about them. It's about having the fire burn away the dross and the things that are secondary and to have a genuine real faith that brings praise and glory and honor to the Lord. That's what Peter's writing to these Christians undergoing some suffering. Then he says, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. By the way, what's the difference between Peter and the people he's writing to? Isn't it interesting? Peter's like, you haven't seen him, but I have. But we both love him. So Peter's making a contrast with what he has seen and with what they haven't seen, yet we still love him. Uh, where did I go? Boom. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what's the whole point here? What's the outcome of our faith? salvation, and that we are tested in the genuineness of our faith and bring glory and honor to God. Peter's basically saying, you've all lost your focus. 
here's what this Christian faith is about. And you can ground your Christian faith, you're going to be able to suffer much better because you have a purpose how you suffer. Now, by the way, one side thing is he says, when the salvation of your souls, just kind of a side note that's really important. Sometimes we interpret this, we go, yeah, that means when we die, the body goes into the ground. And when we go to be with heaven, we are immaterial souls and spirits. That's a very unbiblical, platonic way of thinking about the afterlife. The reality is we are embodied souls. We are body and soul. We're both. Our bodies are a part of who we are. And we actually know this. I hate to use the example in one sense, but it makes the point. Is the recent drama at the Academy Awards where Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. Obviously, everybody heard about this drama. Why would I bring this up? Is Chris Rock, if he was going to sue him, wouldn't sue him for property damage, right? What did everybody say? Will Smith hit who? He hit Chris Rock. He hit his body, but he hit him. We, act, we think about ourselves and we reflect upon it, that we are body and soul. In the afterlife, we are resurrected, and we are body and soul. Scripture has a high value on the body, so much that God, who is spirit, took on human flesh. So when it says the salvations of your soul, soul is just being used to describe the salvation of you, a person, even though it will include your body and your soul. Does that make sense? We don't want to read this in too platonic of a fashion and think, oh, salvation is when you leave the body behind. The body is good. The body is a part of who we are. In the resurrection, we will be reanimated with physical bodies like Jesus was, who was the first fruits. Okay? Important, important distinction. Let's read a little bit more, and then we'll pause for questions. Verse 10 says, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Again, what is Peter referencing? The Old Testament, the prophets, they spoke of this. Just like Jesus in Luke 24 said, don't you know the Old Testament spoke of me? Peter continues in that vein. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time, notice the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, where do we see at least the suffering of the Messiah predicted? In the Old Testament, what book? Isaiah chapter 53. This is a passage that Peter is going to refer to. Really 52, 13 through 53, 12. That passage of the suffering servant is what Peter is referring to. Verse 12, it says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. The things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. And let me pause. Any questions just about this so far? Anything jump out? Kind of clarity? Yeah. I don't think from what we've read so far it implies necessarily that somebody, couldn't lo- I, yeah, that somebody couldn't lose their salvation. She was asking about. Sorry, I'll, I'll repeat the question next time. This is an area where Christians will differ, but I think the idea of somebody losing their salvation, that this could be taken from somebody, is certainly ruled out. The fact that there is a salvation is guaranteed. On the Calvinist side would say if they left, they never were saved in the first place, okay? The Arminian side would say there's an awful lot of warnings all over the scriptures not to leave the faith, to finish strong, which seems to imply that it's a possibility. I'm not going to land that theological ship right now, but that's the two ways that people would process it. But if the bottom line is if you believe in Jesus and you've repented of your sins— you have a guarantee in the next life. It's unperishable, it's unfading. No one can take that away from you because Jesus has risen from the grave. 
Yes, so she asked a question about if we're body and soul, how can we say he's in heaven when his body is in the grave? So Paul talks about being present with the Lord, you know, but also talking about being absent you know, in, in his body. There's a sense where we are made embodied, and physical death is the separation of the body and the soul. Spiritual death is when somebody is, because of sin, been separated from the Lord, and they're not in relationship with God. Eternal death is when somebody dies physically in a spiritually dead state, leads to eternal death, okay? But even upon death, human beings are not complete. We are awaiting the final resurrection where we will be re-embodied. It's a temporary state where that is separated. Uh, so let me answer one more and then we'll keep going. Would heaven be considered a temporary? When you go to Revelation, you get to the last chapters, like 19 through 21, it's clear that there's a new heavens and a new earth that has not come yet. So people are in God's presence. He says to the thief, you know, today you will be with me in paradise. But it's not the new heavens and the new earth as is described in Revelation until Jesus comes back the final time and judges. Fair enough? Excellent questions. If you have other questions, I know we could keep going, write some of them down. Thursday night, we're going to carve out some time to kind of talk through some of the remaining questions. We'll do one more fast. Go. I do. Let me, let me jump in. We're not going to enter in the debate of losing salvation or not. And I don't think you can point just to John 10 and say that answers that because there's going to be some interpretation about it. So look, fair question. This is huge. I'm not saying for or against. I'm saying in a passage like this, what is Peter getting at? We're going to have to really interpret and unpack some of those. So good point though. Let's, uh, man, time goes fast. I don't want to rush through this for the sake of rushing through it. I don't think that'd be helpful. Um, we literally have, let, let's keep going. Just We'll make a little bit more progress, and then we'll stop where we're at, and we'll just pick up tomorrow. Even if we don't get through chapter one, it's fine. So verse 13, okay? Verse 13 says, therefore. Now, by the way, when you see therefore, exactly, what is it there for? That should pause and say, okay, therefore, so Paul, uh, Peter feels like he's made an argument, he's made some points, so here's what follows from what he said. So if you pick up your Bibles, you start reading verse 13, divorced from the verses before, you're going to miss Peter's point, okay? He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. By the way, Peter says this three times in his book. Be sober-minded. So this would clearly be, this verse is used oftentimes to talk about concern with being drunk, concern with certain drugs that would take over and take away your ability to think rationally and reasonably. And I think there's a lot to be said with this. So he's saying in light of this, he says, prepare your minds for action. This is a call. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, you see what he's doing? He's saying, set your hope, which is set your mind. Peter's writing these people saying, you need to shift in your thinking. You need to transform your priorities. You need to transform the way you think about this because you're getting caught up in the present moment and you're missing that Jesus rose from the grave and we have this undefiled promise in the kingdom of heaven if we focus on that, that is our hope. Now, by the way, why can they have hope? You see this theme comes up a lot in 1 Peter. Hope is not like, hey, I hope inflation goes down. Like, we all hope that, but that's kind of a blind hope, right? Unless we have some evidence to see something's going to happen. How can they have a grounded hope? Because a few decades before this, Jesus rose from the grave. 
And Peter saw the risen Jesus with his own eyes. So this is a reasonable, grounded hope that he's trying to drive them to have a change. Then he says in verse 14, he says, as obedient children. Now let me stop right there. Why does he use the term children? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I think a couple ways. Number one, you see he chooses this term. You see Peter's love for the believers. He kind of is assuming this fatherly role, but it's also reference to God as father as well. I feel like this is a term of endearment that Peter's using as obedient children. He's the pastor, right? We said he said, Jesus said, tend, you know, tend my sheep, care for my flock, shepherd them. I think that's what Peter's doing. You see this affection come through. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Does that remind you of anything in the book of Romans chapter 12? Remember what Peter says? He says, don't be conformed to this world or the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice the difference. Conformed is a passive verb, right? In other words, our default position is to be formed to the patterns around us. If we're not thoughtful, we get conformed. Rather, be transformed actively by the renewing of your mind. Peter's saying the same thing. He's saying you all have been conformed to the world around you. We need to refocus our hope refocus our thinking on what is eternal, not what is temporal. So you see this overlap with Peter and with Paul here. Last point. I think this will be a good verse to to stop on. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And what's that a reference again to? The Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus. What was the ultimate reason why the Israelites should be holy? Because God is holy. I think we miss this in the church sometimes. A a book I wrote, gosh, I think 2020 came out, two years ago. It was called Chasing Love About Sexual Purity. And I went back and I read all, every book I can get my hand on, from those who are critical of Christian views of purity to those who support it. One of the big impressions that I saw is we often would say to students, we give the wrong motivation to be sexually pure. Don't be sexually immoral because you'll get a sexually transmitted disease. Don't be sexually immoral, you ruin your future marriage. Don't be sexually immoral, you will be depressed. Now, there is some truth in each one of those. But the problem is if we motivate a young person this way, and say, don't be sexually immoral or you're having STD, they'll think, well, if I use a condom, if I have sex with somebody who hasn't had sex before, like, that's the kind of thinking that it leads to. I think there's one main reason we should try to motivate young people to be sexually pure. And that's because God is pure. We should be holy because God is holy. Now, as a secondary motivation... We say the reason we're sexually pure is because God is good. And that is God's character. Now, when we follow God, we most flourish when we live the way God designed us to. And when we step out of that, there's consequences. STDs, depression, etc. But that's not the primary motivation. The primary motivation should be because God is holy and he has called us to be holy. This is a great verse to end on because this is at the heart of 1 Peter. 1 Peter's, Peter's writing a book to people, like we've said, they're suffering, they're experiencing a culture that's increasingly hostile to their faith. And Peter's trying to motivate them how to suffer well. And as we get into this book, he gets even more practical what this looks like. He talks about slaves. He talks about in relationship with the government. But the bigger reason is, underlying all of it, is be holy because I am holy. So just as the nation of Israel was to be a light to the world, that's why God started Israel. 
he says clear, like when David, I love this in, in 1 Samuel 17, when David defeats Goliath, he's basically saying, I'm going to defeat you so people will know there is a God over Israel, the one true God. The whole purpose was that people would see the power of God and the holiness of God. Well, now that we're a church, it's the same thing, that we are to be holy. Number one, to honor God. But number two, as we get through this book, it's all about live holy lives. So your neighbors will see that there's something different in you and ultimately give God the glory. So I want to invite you as we wrap up to read this book, find 15 minutes, read it between now and tomorrow. We're going to pick up at verse 17. We'll jump into verse 18. No reason to kind of rush through that. If we don't get through all five chapters, not the end of the world. I'm more concerned with the substance and the process that we're working through. But have in the back of your mind a little bit some of the questions Peter is raising. Where is my focus? Is it just on the present? Is it just on the temporal? Do I have the confidence that Jesus has really risen from the grave? And as a result, I can suffer well. That's where Peter is moving us. Now keep in mind, last, last thing. This is a book about how the church can interact with a, a, a culture that's increasingly hostile. Sometimes we can overstate the persecution the early church was going under. I think more at this time it wasn't people being crucified. This really began with Nero a few years after this book was written in Rome, and Peter was probably one of them who was killed during the reign of Nero. But the temperature is being turned up a little bit. And really what was going on is the Christians were different. They wouldn't sacrifice to the gods. And so people thought, well, wait a minute. Sacrificing the gods is what protects us from famines, protects us from droughts, and the Christians won't sacrifice to the gods. They have these weird practices. So what Peter's trying to say is how do we be holy to God in a way that draws other non-believers to see that God is holy? That's the biggest question in this book. And that's the one that matters most. All right. Good discussion. You told me 817 was the drop dead time. So by the time I'm done talking, it'll probably be 817. But tomorrow we're going to pick up verse 18 and we'll see how far we can move into chapter two. All right. Thanks for coming. Great discussion.